1: Side of Midnight, I'm Frank Morano. A lot to get to this hour, including uh, Dr. Richard Sakwa, who is going to tell us about the war that uh, you and many others have uh, probably forgotten about. But two quick things that I want to bring to your attention before we get to Dr. Richard Sakwa. I'm also going to get to your calls in a moment. Are you familiar with Crystal Hefner? Do you know who Crystal Hefner is? Crystal Hefner is a beautiful woman. She's uh, a model... She was a Playboy Playmate of the Month. She was on a reality show called The Girls Next Door. And the reason she got her last name, if that sounds familiar, is because she was the third wife of Playboy publisher Hugh Hefner. And she married Hugh Hefner in December of 2012, and they stayed married until his death in September of 2017. At the time they got married, I guess she was about 20... Six at the time? That sounds about right. Yeah, 26. Hef was 60 years older than her. 60 years older than her. Now, he's 80, in his late 80s, she's in her mid-20s. He's also Hugh Hefner. What do you think this relationship is going to be like? Okay. Think about that. Then, keep in mind this. When Hef died, Crystal Hefner inherited a sizable amount of money. She was entitled to a substantial payout of $7 million cash. Cash. She also inherited a $5 million Hollywood Hills house, which Hugh left in a trust for her to live in after his death since he had sold the Playboy Mansion for $100 million. So this is someone that, in my view, knew exactly what she was getting into. And yet, um, she is now writing a book. She's written a book. It's out now. And look, I don't begrudge anybody from trying to uh, capitalize on their celebrity or tell their story as they want to tell it. But in the last week... I have read stories about this Crystal Hefner tell-all book in Yahoo News, The New York Post, The New York Times, People Magazine, OK Magazine, The Daily Mail, and Us Weekly. And, you know, I haven't read this book yet, but here is what I think my problem is with this, and I'm sure Crystal Hefner is a very nice woman, but the book really makes Hef look terrible. It makes him look... Like a, uh, a creepy old man that was a terrible husband and really not a very good person. And <clears throat> I, my problem with it is this. Crystal Hefner strikes me as someone who was worldly enough, even though she was young. Not that young, by the way. 26 is not that young terms of she's not 15 years old that she's uh never been out of the house before she strikes me as someone that knew exactly what she was getting into in a relationship with hef she knew this would be good for her career which it has been she knew this would be good for her uh financially which it has been she knew this would be good for her fame wise and she knew exactly what it's like being married to hugh hefner Being married to Hugh Hefner is not the same as being married to a Presbyterian minister. It's not the same as being married to Billy Graham. Chances are, I think if you're married to Hugh Hefner, you have to expect that there's going to be a fair amount of debauchery involved. If you're not expecting that, maybe don't get married to Hugh Hefner, who's 60 years older than you. But again, I've seen a lot of great relationships with people who have very different ages. One article, for instance, again, the, the media can't get enough of this story because it's clickbait, right? Crystal Hefner reveals in her memoir that she found little spy holes at the foot of her late husband's bed, evidence that he was taping his sexual escapades. This book's out today, by the way. She writes in the book, when I asked him about them, he just shrugged. But what are they for, I asked. I used to do a lot of filming, he said proudly. VHS, I had hours of video, hundreds of sexy tapes. She asked if his subjects knew they were being filmed. It's my bedroom, my house, he replied. He told her that he had A-list celebrities on tape, as well as videos of wild orgies, uh, also with celebrities and politicians and business leaders, some of whom were married, she writes. Um... I think the cameras were out of commission by the time I got there, but there were these carved wood panels and one of the panels on the right had a circular cutout. So Crystal, who's now 37, she married Hugh Hefner when she was 26 and he was 86 and was with him until his death at 91 years old. And in her book, uh, Crystal recalls first meeting her future husband in 2008 ...when she was a 21-year-old senior in college. She'd applied to be a guest at a Halloween party at the Playboy Mansion... ...which requested her to send in pictures. She said, I didn't think I would ever get picked. And I cringe thinking about it because they were probably not very good photos. So once on the property, Crystal, who was dressed in a French maid costume... ...was pushed by her friend to the edge of a velvet rope. On the other side of it... Hugh was sitting in a cabana, surrounded by women and security guards, and then his gaze fell on me, she writes. He pointed at me and crooked his finger. I could see his mouth forming the words, You, come here. She spent the night in his spectacular and crowded bedroom where she, Christina and Carissa Shannon, the twins who were his girlfriends at the time, and a girl named Amber, took turns pleasing Hef. She writes, there was no kissing or romance or intimacy. Even that first night, even on Cloud 9, it all felt odd and robotic, like Hef was just going through the motions of something that had once been fun and sexy, or maybe it was never fun and sexy. So she quickly moved up the ranks and became Hef's main girlfriend. So throughout the course of their relationship, it was never monogamous. Before they were married. So in 2010, he presented Crystal with an engagement ring, but never actually popped the question. He just handed it to me in a box and said that he hopes it fits. I feel that maybe he didn't ask me because then it didn't give me the option to say no. Although she got cold feet and secretly moved out of the mansion just days before their wedding, she eventually returned and tied the knot with Hefner in 2012 and purposely chose to wear a pink dress Because it didn't feel real. I thought for my real wedding, I'll wear white. Crystal revealed that their union didn't stop Hef from bringing other women into their bed, and she actually preferred it that way. He still wanted sex to be a group activity, though, and that while distasteful... Yes, because, Crystal, you strike me as just the epitome of refined tastes. And that while distasteful was better than the alternatives... The handful of times he tried to be romantic or intimate with me, only me, it was just awkward. It was clear he had no idea how to do it. When Crystal and the other girlfriends would travel with Hef via limo, he would always bring a disposable camera. He wanted us to flash the camera, pull up our skirts, spread our legs, show everything. A lot of girls did, and I watched as those cameras filled up with the most incriminating images. Crystal happened to stumble upon those thousands of photos in shoeboxes in the mansion's attic. There were about 70 staff members, and they could open any drawers at any time, so I don't think he really cared about people's privacy. I just thought, if this was me in these photos, what would I want done with them? So I just ripped them up by hand, all of them. Now, she was on Playboy's cover twice, and she keeps uh, some copies in the garage. Her future plans include finding a good person to start a family with and removing the Hefner from her name. I definitely want to drop it eventually because I'm done with that part of my story. Now, I, I, I find, again, I've never spoken to this woman and maybe my read on this is a little different than if I had spoken to her. I find everything about this story so objectionable. She's eager to remove the Hefner from from her name, as if she's Hitler's grandson, you had no idea what the kind of stuff Hugh Hefner was into when you agreed to say I do. I find this to be so disrespectful to your husband. I mean, I guess I guess she's waited enough time. I can't say this is this happened the day after Hef died. She had this tell all book waiting. I just strike it strikes me as so Bush league and so low class that somebody would do this to their dead husband. I mean, look, I guess I'm not shedding any tears for Hugh Hefner's posthumous memory, because, uh, you know, when you marry someone that's 26 and you're 86, I I think chances are, you know what you're getting into. Right. You know, she's going to have a whole second life after you and writing books. But here's my issue really is she's benefiting from the name hefner nothing would have stopped her from going back to using her maiden name after hef died no one would have begrudged her that she could have absolutely done it but it wouldn't have sold as many books if she wrote this book under her maiden name which nobody even knows and it's just, I don't know why you have to kind of badmouth your husband who made you a multimillionaire. Something that tells me if you went back to using the name Crystal Harris, nobody would buy the book. What do you think? 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Robert in Pearl River. Hello.
0: Yeah, how you doing, Frank? You know, it's funny that you mention this because I was reading something about this, actually as a YouTube, about Paulina Poroskova, the supermodel, okay, and she married Rick Ocasek. Well, he knew, he knew something was up. This guy probably has some very old UK values, but he, uh, he gave her nothing. Did you hear about that story from the car? No. You read about it, and I think she lost the suit. And he put, she was not in the will. And then he's like, he's laughing. Ha ha, I know you like me. He wasn't the most handsome guy. Okay. And he knew that. And then he knew it was, it, it was for money. And same thing with Bella Lugosi. She had, he had a, a girl that was taking care of him. And, you know, as famous as he is, it would be the same deal. It's all about money. With wealthy people, for me, that would never happen to me. I would like a young chickie, you know, but it's not going to happen. So, but wealthy people have it. Clint Eastwood was another one. I mean, you got to look long and hard for somebody who's going to really love you. Uh, you know, if you're going to be that age, you know what I mean? 86 and a girl is like 26 or something. So, but. Uh, so, uh, so
1: do you, do, do you share my distaste for how Crystal Hefner is handling this?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I feel the same way about. What happened with Paul, Paulina Poroskova? I think, you know, it's just, it's, it's just ridiculous. They're sugar daddies, and there's no love there. Maybe they might found it in a nursery, in a nursery rhyme in the deep south or something like that. <laughs> but it's not going to happen. When somebody really young like that is going is to uh, love a guy that old, it's just, I remember when I was young, okay, when I was like uh, early 20s. Actually, let's, let's say I was a teenager, and I saw an older person and an older, you know, uh, woman or an older man said, "Wow, that person's really old." I was even scared to say hello. I, you know, I was a teenager. Am I going to, you know? So it's it's something. It's, it, it was wrong the way well, she. Yeah, I know. Mean, go ahead,
1: go ahead. Finish your comment.
0: Yeah, I, I just, I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna do that, at least, you know, like the person. You know, respect the person. Right. And
1: after the guy passed away, just don't take the money and run and think it's a big deal. Exactly, Robert. And then, thank you. And, and you, know, you know, it's not just taking the money and running. It's taking the money, running, and then bashing the person that made you a millionaire and a celebrity. Why? I mean, why is this necessary? There's a lot of people that were friends of Hef that are still alive and— They don't want to – and Hef has children and grandchildren. I mean, look, Hef did a lot of things that I'm sure most people wouldn't want their grandchildren reading about. But do they need to see the headline in the New York Times? This is what the New York Times says today or uh, five days ago. A creeper's paradise. Crystal Hefner opens up about Playboy. I mean, why? Who benefits by this except her? It's just – she could have said something nice, but maybe that wouldn't have got her as generous a book advance as I'm sure she got for this particular book. 800-848-9222, 800 uh, Diana is in Manhattan. Hi, Diana.
2: Hi. As always, I love your show and you discuss things no one else discusses. You are brilliant. Thank you. But about this lady, maybe she resented the fact that Hugh Hefner could afford to buy her. You know, and let's face it, if Hugh Hefner were a woman, he would be the most outrageous slut who ever lived. Worse than Messalino, worse than anyone. But because he's a man, oh, great guy, yeah, that half. But I mean, I once dated a very rich man, and I didn't even like him that much. And well, why I really resented why the fact that him? he could afford to, in effect, buy me because he could buy me stuff. And I thought, why does this slob have all this money, when some guy digging a ditch works a lot harder than he does, and he doesn't get paid a lot,
1: you know? But why did you date him if you didn't like him?
2: I didn't dislike him; I just wasn't crazy about him, honey. The money, come on, grow up. No, but up. but, but so, like?
1: but you, I mean, when you say the money, did he did he give you money on dates, or you just like that he paid for things and bought lavish gifts? Both. Really? Okay. All right. Look, I I mean, I understand the appeal. I just, um, I guess I just don't like that people, uh, I, I don't like bashing dead people to begin with. I understand, especially when it comes to criminal cases. I, I know this was a lot of mafia people. Uh, they always say, uh, oh, oh I, I couldn't tell this story about so-and-so while they were still alive because then something could happen to me. Okay, I'll buy that, right? I just, I just don't like, and Katie Couric did this to some extent with Larry King, and people do this all the time, is when people are dead and can no longer defend themselves, people feel free to say whatever they want. Bash them like crazy, terrible person. He did this creepy thing. Well, oh, excuse me. Well, well, did you mention any of this while this person was alive? Um, I just think people deserve the right to retort. And as far as he knew, I mean, look, again, this was an unconventional marriage from the beginning. But as far as he knew, this was, you know, somebody that cared for him and stayed married to him until the end of his days. 800-848-9222. 848 uh, 9222 This is uh, Frank. We're going to talk with Dr. Richard Sakwa in just a minute. Uh, David in the Bronx. David, give me your thoughts on this.
3: Okay, Frank, you can't be that naive to believe that Hugh Hefner actually believed that any of these women that he shared his bed with were in love with him. The man was a pervert, all right? There's likely crimes that were committed at the Playboy Mansion. There is a long list of things that Hugh Hefner did that were questionable, and this notion that he is somehow protected because he's dead is ridiculous, and you have no right. To cast aspersions on this woman. Well,
1: first of all, hang on, hang on, David. But first of all, if if there were crimes committed at the Playboy Mansion that she knew about, for instance, I think that's all the more reason she should have said something while he was alive. And maybe whatever crime was committed still would have been subject to a statute of limit, you know, uh, would have been within the statute of limitations.
3: Okay. The fact of the matter is, though. When you're an 80-something-year-old man and you're pursuing 20-something-year-old girls because even though they're adult women, they're still very young, you know what you're getting yourself into. The idea that a 20-something-year-old woman would be sexually attracted to someone that age is patently ridiculous, and if Hugh Hefner believed that he was in a loving relationship – he shouldn't have been at the Playboy Mansion. He should have been in an insane asylum wearing a Hannibal <laughs> Lecter mask. Yeah, but
1: that's the thing is, obviously, you know, it was never, even when they were dating, it was never a monogamous relationship. So I guess I just, um, I, I, I find she's doing kind of a, a babe in the woods routine. I mean, what did she expect in getting involved with a relationship like this?
3: Okay, These type of relationships are clearly transactional. Mm -hmm. She got what she wanted, and apparently she got quite a bit because $7 million in cash is nothing to sneeze at, and a $5 million house isn't either. But you know what? He got what he wanted because Hugh Hefner, being the egomaniac that he apparently was, he, even though he was a decrepit, disgusting old man, got to be – photographed with these young women, I think there was three of them at one time, and then there was these twins and, and these other women. I mean, that is not normal. And I question any time you have these old, pardon my French, farts that hang out with women that are 30, 40 years younger than them, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, all of them, because they know what they're getting. They know that it's not about, you know, if they were just a truck driver, there's no way they could get women that young. Listen, I'm 40. Well, I'm 52 now. I was dating women 20-something years younger than me, even after I went blind. But after a point, I realized that, A, I had an age and experience advantage. And honestly, I couldn't understand half what these women were talking about. Mm -hmm. I had to come home and look what they were saying in the Urban Dictionary because I didn't understand the lingo. (laughs) That's when I decided, you know what? I'm out of the dating scene. If I was 86 there's no way I would hang out with a twenty-something year old girl. Period. Thank, thank, you, thank you,
1: David. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Keith is in Ohio. Hello, Keith.
4: Hi. How you doing, Frank? This is Keith and Natty Boy. You know, I got a question. It seems like nobody's asking that I'm wondering about because I lost contact with paying attention to the Hugh Eifner stuff. Whatever happened to his longtime first wife? That she always went by her maiden name, Barbie Benton.
1: Well, I they mean, were did never
4: she die. Did they divorce? Yeah. Or well, uh,
1: he was never married uh, to Barbie Benton, but yeah, she had kind of uh, a uh, yeah. I, I don't. They had. She had a lot of difficulties. I don't know what um, what really became of her, uh, but um, you know, I, I really don't know. I couldn't really say. But he had, uh, I think, four wives, and he never he never married um, Barbie Benton, as I understand it. But I, I don't know. I don't know what what ever became oh, of. her. yeah, I, mean. I
4: always considered that. I they call him in law.
1: Yeah, I don't know if California is a state that recognizes common law marriage, but uh, she's, she's still alive. She's 73 years old. I just looked it up. And uh, I don't know what she's up to now. Maybe she's had enough of the spotlight. Maybe like Richard Simmons. Thanks, Keith. 800-848-9222. Christine, what's on your mind?
5: Hi, Frank. Uh, Good evening. I just wanted to talk about something you mentioned before about Wikipedia. Sure.
1: Um,
5: I would be very hesitant to trust someone who reached out to you like that. They seem to have a very um, cult-like network. Um, You know, they say anyone could... um, Edit their page you don 't have to be a member um, and if you look up election denial movement, type those words into your keyword. the whole thing is just disparaging to Republicans and trump and and doesn 't even get into the fact that prior to Trump, you know the original election denier was like Hillary Clinton in two thousand and sixteen before Trump was you know even in uh president so um well, when she lost to him, you know, she kept saying that he was an illegitimate president.
1: Well, and, and by the way, the and it goes thing. back even before then, even in 2004, uh, a lot of people b- believed and said publicly that John Kerry won that election in 2004. So, I, I, you know, it was not something that was verboten until 2020. You could say what you wanted and maybe you were right, maybe you were wrong, but nobody ever got, you know, canceled for sharing their opinion about it. Maybe. That's true. Uh, thank you, Christine. Appreciate it. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Daniel is in Brookline. Hello, Daniel.
5: Hey, hey, Frank. Oh, Danielle.
1: Um, um,
6: excuse
5: me. So the whole yes, Danielle. <laughs> um, the whole thing with her getting married to Hugh, she should she should have known. She probably already knew what. Was expected of her, considering that she had been with him, right? She was one of his girlfriends, right, correct? Right.
1: Exactly. Right. So
5: she, for her to turn around and write this book, is just her trying to make herself out to be like a victim, almost. I feel like, like, oh, whoa well, me, what well, was me? Like, so any guy, this my fu- the future husband that I want, future family doesn't look, doesn't see me as like um, a gold digging, whatever. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know I mean? That, that's like, exactly crazy. how I view the situation. Exactly how I view it, right? right? I mean, this is her saying, woe is me. I'm the victim. I have my $5 mm-hmm. million dollar pillow to, to million cry dollar on. House. Yeah. I, 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 I think it's incredible. <laughs> but what about what David said um, a minute ago when he said, hey, both people got into this knowing what the deal was. It's entirely transactional and there's nothing wrong with, um, you know, with, with this woman sharing her story. What, what do you make of that?
5: It'd be one thing to share the story, but it's another thing to then trash him. Like, Hugh Hefner was... Right. Like, he, right. he was a revolutionary. Like, he, like, started a movement that, you know, brought, like, many men and women, like, help in their marriages or whatever it was. Like, he he should not be downplayed or made to look out to be a pervert when everybody knows, like, he... Like he yeah, he slept with a bunch of girls he he had many girlfriends, like that was that was his thing. There's no need to like bring him down, like try to make him look bad about it like that's that's who he was there you can't you can't argue about that, don't make him out to be something that something worse or than people might already have that opinion of him of, but that is who he is i mean to to each its own, like good for him, man, I'm glad like good for him, he had a good life. But don't make yourself out to be like your, are like you were uh, like she
2: a
1: victim, was, like, abused, right? She wasn't like, a she
5: victim. Take like, advantage, right. Of or it, it, you know like, exactly. Please get over that. She knows exactly what she was doing. Like anybody, like twenty-six years old. Okay, like, if you've been in that situation, if you've been living in that situation, you know what the deal is. You can't hey, like you can't be that naive.
1: Would you ever get involved with a man that was forty or fifty or maybe even sixty years older than yeah. you? At any age, no. Nah. No,
5: no, no. even if like, even if it was like for like money, like just transactional No, because I have this thing called uh, morals and respect for myself. And yeah, uh, (laughs) basically, I I couldn't do that to myself, let alone to another human being that might be let on to right. anything.
1: Right, exactly. Uh, Danielle, thank you. Let me squeeze in one more call on this, and then we'll talk with um, uh, Dr. Richard Sackwa, who's uh, calling in from across the pond in England. Vivian listening on uh, KMOX in St. Louis. Hello there, Vivian. Hi, Frank. How are you? I'm doing, I'm doing just wonderfully. I'm glad that we're on every day there now, and I'm glad you're calling in.
2: Oh, yeah. I just wanted to comment. You must have forgot about Anna Nicole Smith. Remember? She married an older man
1: rich well yeah i i well i didn't forget about her at all but to me that's a very different situation because there was obviously a very big age gap but yeah. from the time that uh her ex-husband died from uh-huh. until the time that she died i don't think she said a negative word about him once uh she, no, didn't, she did she I, really did I, I, I mean to me that's the opposite of what mm-hmm. Crystal Hefner is doing. She's someone that until she died, she really seemed to treasure their time together and his memory and always publicly said nice things about him and didn't say he was a creep or a this or had these uh, peepholes and pictures that violated people's privacy. To me, I mean, that's I mean, to the extent that you can even use this word to me, that's a classy way to kind of right, handle the death right. of an older husband. Do you
2: know, did she ever claim her fortune that she was supposed to? You know, I think it was the the son or the grandson. Somebody was fighting her about that money.
1: Yeah, uh, my understanding is uh, she did get the bulk oh, okay. of the money. Yeah, and then uh, her child, who is... Um, who, the, was, There was a big dispute over who the father of that child was. I think the, right. fa- the child's father, Larry Burkhead, was then in a position to get a lot of that money um, himself. But I honestly... It's been a while since I followed her um, her estate uh, issues, but I'm going to go ahead and go back and look at that. It's uh, You've made me curious. Thanks for the okay. call, Vivian. Spread the word out there for us in St. Louis. Okay, I will. Vivian, do you say Missouri or Missouri? Missouri. I love it. Okay, great. <laughs> well, all right. Well, well done, Vivian. Thank you. Happy to be heard on KMOX, a, uh, one of the great radio stations in the country. It, it is uh, really a... Top notch station in the Midwest. Love our audience there and appreciate the opportunity to be on. Hey, I appreciate the opportunity to tell you about a war that is still raging, even though you don't hear about it as much anymore. We're going to get into this with a, a real scholar who has studied the history of this situation and how things could have been different. Dr. Richard Sakwa joins me straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
1: Let's go across this pond to the U.K. uh, to talk with one of the great historians, one of the great foreign policy scholars of our time in any continent. You know, uh, over the weekend, I saw some very disturbing headlines. Russia strikes back at Ukraine for monstrous act of terrorism after market and oil terminals attacked. And for a moment, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. Oh, that's right. There's still a war going on between Russia and Ukraine. But in any event, they traded retaliatory strikes over the weekend after another Russian oil terminal was attacked on Sunday, as were the Russian-occupied city of Donetsk and nine Ukrainian regions. Moscow accused Kiev of launching a missile strike on a market in a Donetsk city, killing at least 25 people and wounding 20 others. Obviously, the Ukrainians have a very different perspective. But in looking at this... I am really asking myself the question, was all this inevitable, this new Cold War, which seems to be heating up, not just in Europe, but potentially elsewhere, rapidly, was all this avoidable? Well, Dr. Richard Sakwa says that it was. Uh, Dr. Sakwa is an emeritus professor of Russian and European politics at the University of Kent in the UK, one of the foremost experts on Russia, and the author of the new book, The Lost Peace: How the West Failed to Prevent a Second Cold War. Dr. Sakwa, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Good morning. Good morning. My pleasure. So um, it's interesting in the United States, whether we're talking newspapers, radio, or television. The Russia-Ukrainian conflict has been totally knocked off the front page by the Israeli-Palestinian conflict since October 7th, and a lot of people, I think, really still need a reminder that this war is still going on. I'm curious, is that the case in the UK or the rest of the West, or is this uniquely American?
6: No, it's a general phenomenon because of the enormity of what's going on in uh, in Palestine and, uh, and over in Gaza. Clearly, uh, the agenda has moved on. Also, the shipping issues in the Red Sea with the uh, from Yemen, the Houthis, uh, um, and the disruption involved in uh, supply chains. So Ukraine has gone down uh, the agenda in the news cycle. That doesn't mean to say that the war has gone away. As you point out, uh, the war is still in full flood uh, and it's winter now. So there's no major offensive, but the battles continue. You saw the attack. You mentioned it on Donetsk over the weekend, which was a pure and unmitigated attack on a civilian population. There's no military purpose to it. It was just, uh, a continuation of what's been going on since 2014, uh, Donetsk. Uh, you mentioned it as Russia occupied, as it were. This is where Russians have been living for a long time. Uh, and clearly the goal of uh, the Donetsk initially was a degree of autonomy. Uh, do we have any
1: idea, because I've tried to do my own research on this, and I have had a difficult time finding consensus among sources, do we have any idea what the actual casualty numbers are on both sides of this conflict? How many Ukrainians
6: killed or injured? How many Russians killed or injured? Uh, there is no consensus on that. Uh, Ukraine has been keeping its figures uh, completely secret, so we simply have no data from uh, from the Kiev side. Uh, Russia does give figures. Uh, we We don't know exactly how much the Russian figure... Uh, It tends to be, actually, the Russian Ministry of Defense tends to be the most accurate. But we're certainly talking about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians and perhaps up to 100,000 Russian forces. So we're talking about a major war, much, much bigger losses on both sides than, for example, the United States lost in the war in Vietnam, which was 58,000. Wow.
1: Unbelievable! I mean, what a what a tragedy. See, now I hear stories like that, and you know, war is is just terrible. Uh, but to me, it becomes so much more terrible when it's civilians that are being killed, whether they happen to be Ukrainian civilians, Russian civilians, Israeli civilians, or Palestinian civilians. To me, uh, it's it's such a an escalation of the tragedy. I, I did a commentary yesterday or the day before about a four year old boy that um, lost his uh, parents, grandparents, and siblings, and he also lost his arm and is severely burned. He's now um, in the United States getting treatment. And I talk about what a tragedy this is and why I dislike war. And a couple of people have been saying, well, you have to look, no one likes war, but you have to look at who started it? Now, this is always an interesting question when it comes to the Russia-Ukrainian conflict because partisans on both sides have very different answers. When you talk about these civilians in Donetsk, mostly Russian civilians that were killed based on Ukrainian bombs certainly or uh, missiles, certainly looks like the Ukrainians are the bad guys. Someone that's more on the pro-Ukrainian side may say, well, that's because Russia invaded a sovereign country, us, that, uh, that never attacked them. The conventional wisdom in the United States, and I believe this is the case throughout Western media, is that Russia started this war with an unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Based on your reading of the situation, is that accurate?
6: It's completely inaccurate. Uh, two things. First, uh, to your initial point, uh, this war was possibly the most avoidable war in history. It's very difficult still to understand what's it all about? Why did did it have to happen? And of course, it did not. Uh, And therefore, going to your second point about whether it was unprovoked, it was far from unprovoked though whether Russia should have responded in this way, uh, like uh, the invasion of uh, February 2022, is a different issue, though associated. The war itself is the consequence and the culmination of 25 years of mismanagement, of intensifying security agendas, of misunderstandings, lack of diplomacy, lack of dialogue. The bottom line is that there was an opportunity for peace at the end of the first Cold War, Remember Gorbachev, Reagan, uh, H.W. Bush, you know, a lot of talk, endless talk of strategic partnership, but we failed then to institutionalize that and to consolidate that, not just in institutions, but in elements of trust, of development of a new model of world order, to use uh, George H.W. Bush's term, a new world order in which, Not just the United States and Western Europe, but also Russia and, of course, China, India, everybody could live comfortably. It was possible this idea of a positive peace of the sort that John F. Kennedy talked about in his fantastic June 1963 commencement speech. So it was possible we squandered that peace and the war as a result. And it could have been avoided.
1: You mentioned that, uh, that Kennedy address in June of 1963. By the way, if people are just tuning in, uh, we are talking with Dr. Richard Sakwa. He's the author of the new book, The Lost Peace, How the West Failed to Prevent a Second Cold War. Uh, this is a- an address that he gave at American University in June of 1963. Here's a little bit of it.
4: I have therefore chosen this time and place to discuss a topic on which ignorance too often abounds and the truth too rarely perceived. And that is the most important topic on earth, peace. What kind of a peace do I mean and what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war. Not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace the kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living, the kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and build a better life for their children, not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women, not merely peace in our time, but peace in all time.
1: An incredibly eloquent analysis of the situation and an incredibly eloquent description of his hopes for the future. But this was not just a Kennedy thing, and it was not just a Democrat thing. In your book, you point out that um, even President Eisenhower, a five-star general, a Republican, fully understood the futility of what was happening in the Cold War. He said every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies." in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. It's easy to understand to some extent with the significant ideological differences between the Soviet Union and communism and democratic capitalism in the United States why these two countries were natural adversaries. But once the Berlin Wall fell and once the Iron Curtain Um, came down, it really seemed like there was this tremendous sense of optimism, Um, whether it was Gorbachev or Yeltsin or even in the early days Putin um, partying with uh, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, uh, George H.W. Bush. There was this tremendous sense that the Cold War really was over. How did we go from the optimism of the smiling photo ops of Yeltsin and Clinton – to where we are now, where America and Russia are fighting a proxy war in Ukraine.
6: Indeed. As we say, there was this opportunity of peace. Uh, The speeches of Eisenhower and Kennedy still have that enormous power to move. And more than that, the agenda that they set, how to get towards a positive peace, is the task that faces us today. To get there, we need to understand how we managed to squander that peace. And that was the purpose of my book. And there's all sorts of factors involved. It's easy to point the finger one way or the other. For example, those in Moscow will argue, well, you know, despite what Kennedy said, the peace after 1989 was an attempt to impose a Pax Americana. The Soviet Union was defeated. Communism dissolved. Well, this is our time. The so-called neoconservatives in the United States said, exactly it is. We must never allow any opponent ever to develop who could threaten our power. And, of course, this now applies to China. So the same mistakes are being made. And, of course, the expression of that was NATO enlargement. NATO enlargement of its own was Uh, provocative but could have been managed if the europeans had in some way or another we on this continent had established a pan-continental you know model of peace in other words from lisbon to vladivostok not against the united states but to take control of our own security and our own political destiny we failed to do it atlanticism dominated over uh, continentalism european continentalism and of course all the divisions within ukraine uh, were exacerbated russia supported its people the west supported uh, its own vision of how ukraine should develop and of course it just got worse and worse and this second cold war is far worse far more dangerous than the first uh, because there seems to be no way out the first one was understandable, as you say communism versus capitalism, US versus the Soviet mm-hmm. Union. Today, it's deeper because it's in all, all our. It's in all of our souls today, which makes a meeting of minds so much more difficult.
1: Uh, talking with Dr. Richard Sakwa, his book, The Lost Peace, How the West Failed to Prevent a Second Cold War. Uh, Dr. Sakwa, let me ask you about the Russian presidential election, which I know is coming up in March. One of the people that's running against Putin is a gentleman named uh, Boris Nadezhdin. And um, he has spoken out against this war in Ukraine. He's blamed Putin for dragging the country back back to the past instead of turning in on itself. And he says the Russia should court Western investment and start speaking to America and Europe again. But he acknowledges as he did in an interview with the wall street journal over the weekend, that if he's allowed on the ballot, a lot of people are just going to assume that he's a plant to make this election look like a legitimate contest. As far as you can tell, sir, is the upcoming uh, Russian presidential election just a sham, the kind of which we would see in North Korea, or is this likely to be
6: a free and fair election? Uh, well, it's certainly not the latter, but it's neither the former. It's uh, it's not free and fair, but it's, uh, no, it's not managed like a North Korean election. It's somewhere in between. Uh, I mean, Putin enjoys genuine popularity. So, if there was a absolutely free and fair election, with candidates able to air and put their views on mass media television, and if candidates could be uh, allowed to be nominated without, um, you know, the filters, then you know, Putin would probably still win, but with not such a margin. The goal in this election is to show Putin's overwhelming dominance and to get a, a higher vote on a higher turnout than took place in the 2018 election. Nadirshtin is an interesting man uh, because uh, it would add an element of alternative. But in a system like this, he would appeal, he would appear to be a Kremlin stooge as a way of getting a higher turnout. But it would be fantastic to see if he does get uh, on the ballot because it would be given alternative to the voter.
1: Final question, sir. Um, I know that uh, Vladimir Zelensky was at Davos and apparently he brought forward some sort of a a plan for peace. What were the broad strokes of the Zelensky plan for peace? And does that uh, give any reason for people to hope that this conflict will come to an end soon?
6: Absolutely not. Uh, the Zelensky so-called 10-point peace plan is a plan for Russian capitulation to give up. It only intensifies the conflict. It provides no pathway to accepting the interest, not just of Moscow, but of the Russophone and populations within Ukraine itself. This is a war with many levels, and that peace plan, uh, is actually ridiculous even to talk of it as a peace plan. It's a a, a surrender plan. Uh, And of course, we should find, I mean, how to end this war. We need to have dealt with the fear levels within Ukraine, within Europe, and at the global level between United States and Russia, between Moscow and Washington. Dr.
1: Richard Sakwa, uh, thanks so much for coming on this program. I've followed your work for a long time. It's great to finally talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to do so. 800 848 9222. 800 9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight. 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 Night at midnight with Frank Morano.
1: Until the top of the hour, you know, maybe maybe Ozempic is not such a, a bad idea. You know, I have a, a cousin who takes Ozempic and, you know, she says that basically she was able to take it and um, she has a lot of energy now to go out and work out a lot. And she doesn't find herself overindulging. So I've been trying to, you know, I I don't make one New Year's resolution, but I I try to do all the things that I'm trying to do all the year round a little bit better. So one of the things that I've been trying to do since 2024 started is work out a little bit more, you know, with limited time. Uh, But we do have a stationary bike in our bedroom. So I've been trying to get on the stationary bike, you know, a little bit each day. A little bit each day. And I think I'm doing pretty well, right? And you know what happens... Is And I remember this from when I was working out more regularly, and this was my frustration with working out, is you work out and then you're just hungry. You you work out, you burn off all these calories. And I came to work today, I started not only devouring peanut M&Ms because I was famished, I started eating vanilla pudding that's in the kitchen. I've never eaten this vanilla pudding. And yet here I am. I couldn't help myself. So I, I think with the Ozempic, you're able to control those cravings. So, but so anyway, I'm thinking I'm doing pretty well. Yesterday, I do seven miles, right? You know, yeah, or two days ago, I did seven miles. Today, I did or uh, yesterday, I did eight. I went from seven to eight. I said, all right, that's got to be counting for something. I said, let me look up, you know, how much you really need to start cycling to lose weight. <laughs> so I find this one article. For somebody that is uh, actually seems informed, and obviously everybody's different, but this person says, you need to cycle 14 to 16 miles every day to maybe lose a pound or two a week. Now, I mean, I'm not cycling 14 hours, uh, 14 miles every day. It's crazy. So I'll just give up and uh, w- go back to walking around slowly so I won't be so hungry all the time. But uh, or maybe go to the Ozempic route. That's that. That's that. All right. Eight hundred eight 22. A lot of people holding. Those of you that are holding, I don't want to give you forty seconds to just you know rush through your points. So if you hold until the top of the hour, I will get to you right away and allow you to make your comments in an unabridged manner. A lot of other stuff that I uh, have been wanting to get to as well that I haven't had a chance. We'll get into it in just a moment. In the meantime, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population, make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.